Welcome to OECD Podcast, where policy meets people. September 2021 has brought a very literal back to school in most OECD countries. Many students are returning to in-person learning at last, after months of classes taught partially or entirely online. School closures have been significant across the OECD, with 55 in-person learning days lost, on average, for pre-primary school children, and as many as 100 days lost, on average, for high school students. So what has the impact been on young people's learning and well-being? Which groups of students have been the most affected by closures? And what are the long-term implications for both individuals and countries? I'm Kate Lancaster, and you're listening to OECD Podcasts. To answer these questions and to discuss what countries can do to strengthen equity in education, I'm speaking with Marie-Hélène Dumay, Senior Analyst for Education and Skills at the OECD. Welcome, Marie-Hélène, and thank you for being here today. Thank you, Kate. So we know the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on education has been huge. Can you walk us through the key numbers? Yes, sure, Kate. So more than one year into the COVID pandemic, close to half the world's students are still affected by partial or full, or full school closures. Um, now, of course, a number of school lockdown days, so what, what I mean by that is when schools were fully closed, um, and here we're not counting holidays, uh, periods, or weekends or anything, but the number of actual instruction days where, where schools were closed, um, you know, varied differently across countries, but also across education levels. And what we find is that schools closed for um, longer periods of time at higher levels of education. So, for example, um, between the start of 2020 and until May 2021, pre-primary schools were closed for about 55 days on average, uh, compared to more than 100 days at upper secondary level. So high school. Yes, high school. Um, so if we want to bring this back relative to the number of hours students would have normally spent in school, um, you know, on a full year, this represents around 28% of total instruction days for pre-primary children, um, but more than half of their instruction days for high school children. And so that means not that those 50% of days was completely lost, there was no education happening, but that it wasn't happening in person. Yes, exactly. Um, schools shut down, but students didn't stop learning. They just uh, shifted the learning to happen at home. Almost all schools um, in, across OECD countries closed down. Um, but if we look at what happened in 2021, we see that um, the situation is quite different. And uh, most schools closed for shorter periods of time in 2021 than in 2020. How have uh, different students been affected? Have ev has everyone been affected in the same way by school closures and this, this shift to more online learning? We can already see if we take from the perspective of an education level, uh, pre-primary education, there's been a lot of focus on that, uh, particularly to keep them open. Um, and there are different reasons why many countries have really um, insisted on keeping them open uh, as much as possible. Uh, the first one is, is that there is a strong recognition and awareness now of the importance of the early years for children's uh, cognitive, social and emotional skills. Um, the second reason is that you know, distance learning is just very difficult for children at such a young age. Um, they can't sit still in front of a computer screen, and it's probably not desirable for them to do so. I mean, we would not want our children to stay in screens for uh, you know, hours on end, uh, neither, particularly when they're so young. 
Um, and the third reason is also, you know, when confinement started to, to alleviate a bit and people started returning to work, uh, having children go back to, to school was, was really essential to allow their parents to, to return to work. Another level that has also been uh, hardly hit, I, I would say, is vocational education and training. Um, and there are two reasons for that. One of the, the, the first reasons is that um, this is a very practically oriented um, program. Very hands-on. Yes, very hands-on. And while the theoretical component of vocational education can, of course, happen online, um, all the practice, the field-based work, all, all that is, is, is very challenging. Um, the other issue with, voc with vocational education is that uh, a lot of them are based on, um, have a work-based component where they need to go in an enterprise and, and, and work for some time there, but with COVID and with the economic situation, um, a lot of those were not able to provide the apprenticeships that they usually do. We talk a lot about the digital divide, but I'm wondering how that translates for children and for young adults. We talk a lot about the digital divide. Uh, students from lower socioeconomic backgrounds or from less well-off families, they might not have um, you know, the connectivity in place to connect remotely uh, to distance learning. They're, and even when they do, their connections might not be stable enough. Um, they might also not have a quiet place at home to study. So all this impacts their learning environment, which you know, really isn't effective for quality learning to take place. Um, beyond that also, uh, learning from home requires a certain set of you know, other skills that perhaps are not taught so much within the school, you know, um, like uh, you know, being able to learn on your own, autonomy, uh, you know, also perseverance and commitment. It's not easy to focus in front of a screen. Um, and to manage your own time and to know when you need to connect, when you need to study, when you need to, to do your, your, your homework. Um, so all that also, I think children who already had a hard time engaging with education in school will probably find it even more difficult when they're, they're less guided um, at home. Well, it's interesting what you say, the challenges that were already there, because while it's true that these differences and in, uh, inequalities are quite striking, um, I think this is something the OECD has been drawing attention to for a long time now, that the fact that we need to aim for equity and educational opportunities. Yeah, these inequalities have always uh, been there. Um, the OECD program for international student assessment, what we refer to as PISA, provides information on students' performance when they're 15. So this is usually at the end of compulsory education. Um, and uh, it also looks at how their performance varies across a number of, of various equity dimensions like gender, socioeconomic status, the country of origin, just, just to name some. Um, and what we find is that across these dimensions, uh, socioeconomic status is, is the one that affects students' performance the most. Uh, so what we see, for example, across OECD countries is that the share of students that achieve PISA level two, this is the, the minimum level that we expect adults to attain, at least to be able to lead fulfilled lives. And can I just interject, PISA measures skills in reading and science and mathematics. Okay, so here I'm referring to reading scores. So the share of students that achieved uh, at least PISA level two in reading, I come from the lowest socioeconomical background, is around 30% lower than the share of students that reached this level from the highest socioeconomical background. So even before the constraints and challenges posed by COVID, we were already seeing quite a striking difference. 
Yes, exactly. Now, some countries were better simply at, at achieving equitable outcome, outcomes. So, for example, this was the case in uh, Canada, Estonia, or Finland, where um, the difference is less than 15% between those from the, you know, the advantaged, most advantaged families and those from disadvantaged families. It's extremely high. Um, if we take the case of Brazil or Mexico, this difference is more than 50%. So, what, what do you think the, well, the long-term impact could be? The most immediate impact is that they are likely to learn less. If they're likely to learn less, those that already had trouble engaging in school before the pandemic will have even more difficulty doing so quickly. Um, and that they will disengage even further. They might even drop out from education altogether. And of course, the risk of not having upper secondary education means that this might have a longer term impacts on the economic and labor market outcomes of individuals. The employment rate of those that don't have an upper secondary education is 20 percentage points below those that have a university degree. And they also earn less. But even going beyond the money, it's not just about employment, it's not just about earnings. Uh, many social outcomes as well associated with higher education, uh, for example, better health, uh, more involvement in community, in, in, in government, uh, also being more connected to other people. Um, and we find that um, the higher educational attainment people have, ha have the, ha the more likely they are to engage in these other activities. So this is a lot of pressure for this back to school. What do we need to do to improve equity in education, both now and as the pandemic eases? Well, there will be another number of things that would need to be done. So first, I would say... The countries have done a great job in really ramping up investment in education to help the education's response for the pandemic. Um, you know, two-thirds of countries in increased funding in 2020, more than three-quarters of them did so in 2021. Um, so this is very positive. Uh, but it will be really important to help sustain this investment in the future. And it's not so much how much is spent that is important, but also how we spend it. Um, and how countries spend it to make sure that um, you know, learning is effective and it's efficient. I would focus perhaps on three, three elements. The first one is um, making sure um, that, we, that we invest in the early years. So this is extremely important. Um, we have uh, evidence that shows that those who attend early childhood education and care are more likely to perform later. Uh, in school and in life, uh, and also to acquire the solid foundations, the social and emotional skills that will then carry them as well uh, throughout their lifetime. The second one is investing in teachers. Um, you know, we've seen with the pandemic that uh, a lot of teachers were not trained, uh, you know, in terms of ICT, did not have the digital skills uh, to shift so quickly, um, you know, to digital learning. Um, but uh, again, during the pandemic, many countries have, have quickly provided services to help teachers, you know, rise up to this task. And finally, the last one I would say is to invest in adult learning. We're living unprecedented times. The world is changing at such a pace that adult learning is, is really uh, crucial to make sure individuals can adapt to the changes and develop new skills throughout their career as the world evolves. Um, and this is really important you know, for all adults, the high-skilled high ones and those in low-skilled occupations as well. Um, you know, in high technology sectors, workers need to update their competencies to be able to you know, keep pace with the changing techniques. Uh, 
In low technology sectors, it's more the risk of automation and losing their job. Uh, so they need to reskill as well. So it, it really impacts all, uh, all, all adults. Um, but what we see is that um, still only half of 25 to 64 year olds participate in some form of formal or non-formal learning before the pandemic. And by formal, you mean uh, like signing up for a certification course or a, tr uh, a training in a classroom and informal is more on the job or with colleagues or uh, training provided at work? Formal is um, a recognized credential from an institution. Um, and non-formal would be, um, for example, a training uh, that's uh, developed by a company, for example, that you would do within your workplace. And you said only about 50% of, of kind of prime age workers participate in, in either one of those kinds of training. Do we know anything about which kinds of workers are more likely to participate? So those with, with high skills um, are more likely to participate in some form of adult learning. Uh, those that already have uh, a higher education degree are more likely to participate than those that don't. Um, also, the young are more likely to participate than older adults as well. Um, so, so yes, um, there is there is work that needs to be done to promote adult learning to those that need it the most. Um, we actually look at the data uh, on barriers to adult learning and find that the top three reasons reported for not um, engaging in some form of adult learning, they relate to either cost, schedule, or family barriers, particularly when it comes to, to, to women, um, or family reasons, so taking care of children. And, um, and that's where we see where perhaps during the pandemic, what happened is that all three of those were, were suddenly hit. I mean, people had less time um, because they were juggling so many different tasks. Um, you know, family reasons also increased quite uh, particularly for those who had children at home and tried to combine work with uh, homeschooling and then cost um, as well uh, with the economic crisis. So that, that also um, uh, was a factor. And so what we see is that participation dropped by about 27% um, in EU countries, uh, second quarter of 2020 compared to, to 2019. And to me, that's very striking because we've also have OEC data about the kinds of jobs that have been most affected by COVID. And a lot of them are mid or low skilled jobs. And these are the same kind of people and positions where people are not having access to training. Yes, I mean, the, the sectors that were most affected by like COVID were um, you know, the hospitality sectors, the tourism sectors, um, you know, in contrast though, but there, were, there was a lot of creation of opportunities as well. Um, so there, were, there was more demand in the, in the health sector. There was, there was a lot of demand also in the digital sector. So jobs for computer programming skills, um, that, is, that also rose um, during the pandemic. Uh, so it's again, it's a question about being able to reskill, exactly, adapt, and uh, to continue learning throughout your life, but to have the opportunity to do that and the and the means. Yeah, exactly. Well, the good news is that um, data from the third and fourth quarter of 2020 already participation rates would have increased. That is good. Uh, Yes. So there is there is uh, some good news. Another thing that when we're thinking about jobs and skills and learning from the pandemic that has been very striking to me is the 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 reminder it gave us of how important many jobs that we might describe as vocational are the in the frontline service jobs, the frontline health worker jobs. And I was wondering if you have anything to share with us on that. The pandemic has definitely brought to the forefront um, all of these vocational jobs. 
um, they were all considered essential services, most of them. Uh, during the pandemic, they were the only ones who were keeping you know, society afloat while everyone was confined. There's probably an opportunity here as well, um, as we think about the lessons that we learn uh, from the pandemic that we want to carry over with us. Um, is that you know, vocational education was traditionally considered as uh, something you wouldn't go to directly on your own, but more something that you, for example, um, if, if you didn't perform well academically, um, then you would go down that route. And many countries as well uh, have neglected vocational education for, for a number of years, um, you know, focusing a lot of their efforts on developing higher education. Um, but it is uh, something probably with the pandemic, we do see that um, it has restored a bit of the attractiveness of some of these vocational professions. Um, and there is an opportunity here perhaps to raise the, the, the attractiveness, you know, do have more efforts in terms of informing individuals so that going into these pathways is not just one of last resort. We have a data and education advance that we, we often show, which is that the, uh, the, the share of uh, students without tertiary educated parents who go into tertiary education is very low compared to those who do have tertiary educated parents. So if your parents have a university degree, you're more likely to go to university. And if they don't, you're not. Yes, exactly. But the opposite is true for vocational paths. So ah. if your parents don't have a tertiary degree, then uh, you're more likely to go into vocational paths than if they did. But this says that you know, often it's, it's not a question of, of choice so much as just doing what you're used to and what you're used to seeing in your environment. And that's where there's probably a huge opportunity um, you know, to, to highlight you know, what vocational education is, the benefit it brings uh, to society, um, to give students a choice, a real choice, beyond just what they see in their households. It's not just making sure that disadvantaged students have the same opportunities as more advantaged ones. It's also making sure that everyone has the same opportunities and is aware of all of the opportunities so they can really make informed decisions about their pathways. Well, thank you. And as we wrap up, are there any other lessons you'd like to share with our listeners? I would say that COVID-19 has, well, it's caused a lot of disruption, um, it's caused a lot of suffering, of course. Um, but we've also seen a lot of experimentation and a lot of innovation come out of it. And I think it's these that we should build on um, if we want to continue working towards more inclusion um, in education and society more generally. Um, I mean, there's been very, very interesting uh, developments around, around the world. Um, you know, teachers and students have come together with parents, with business, with civil society to try and help students uh, learn, uh, give them access to digital materials. I think the interaction between teachers and students became closer as well during confinement and uh, and teachers as well were more empowered as well to to focus on those students which they felt needed it the most um, so i think it's those lessons that we can carry forward with us um, as we continue to, to build stronger um, out of this pandemic marie-hélène dumay thank you very much for speaking with us today it's been a pleasure thank you very much to learn more about the issues we've been discussing today, go to oecd.org slash coronavirus slash en slash education dash equity. To listen to other OECD podcasts, find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and soundcloud.com slash OECD.